Sound Sam with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Food Tools, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? Our number is 291-6901. And use the area code here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is 225. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. We certainly wish you would. We always enjoy hearing from folks all around town, all around the country, all around the world, for that matter. Now, there you go. <laughs> go ahead and give us a call, and we'll chat you up and kind of get you some advice and now is the perfect time yeah at the beginning of the show is always the best time number one we have all our lines open but number two we're still fairly fresh <laughs> <laughs> our minds aren't scrambled yet like they will be towards the end of the show isn't that the truth there you go of course the weather i guess is the a big big thing locally right? very very unusual for us to see snow yeah you know there's people up north laughing at us because oh, yeah. we got three inches of snow ah, three, yeah, the, yeah the whole town shut bunch down of wimps, and, you know? yeah yeah <laughs> But it's not unusual to see snow at all, but to see snow in, in December, December right. is extremely unusual because this is generally not one of the colder. You know, we, we're normally seeing temperatures in the 50s and 60s this time of year. And right. Be down into the high 20s. Right. It was actually uh, 26, I believe they said it yeah. was last night. Yeah, so. my house in Baton Rouge, I mean, there was about three, four inches of snow standing out in the yard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I can't recall ever seeing that. I, man, I, I can't remember a snowstorm from snowstorm you know, here lately because they're so rare here they are you really just don't get a whole lot and of course in, in new orleans yesterday we got a little bit of flurries you can see some flakes in the air but yeah. it melted the time it hit the ground and new orleans is a few miles south of baton rouge right and being on the lake and being close to the gulf that controls the weather so it tends to be a little warmer there right than it does in the more Northern inlying parishes. <laughs> Baton Rouge is almost due west mm -hmm. of New Orleans. People in Baton Rouge always think of New Orleans being south. Yeah. But it's technically, if you look at a map, it's almost due west of New Orleans. Mm. It's almost straight east. Right. Uh, I think southwise, it's maybe 20, 25 miles south of Baton Rouge, about 60 miles east. Mm -hmm. Kind of peculiar, just the way the interstate's the way laid, laid out. out and what you're used to driving yeah. and thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. You know, I was coming into work this morning, and I saw something that I've seen a number of times. We've talked about it on the show a few times. Okay. But I just thought we'd maybe kind of touch on it just a bit. And that is, a person was going down the interstate with a spare tire, one of those little temporary spares, on the front of their car. Oh, okay. And I guess I was driving about 60 miles an hour because of the weather conditions. They were passing me, so. <laughs> right. They were doing in excess of 60 miles an hour. And, you know, on that little spare tire, that temporary spare, there is the tire pressure in big, bold letters, 60 PSI. Mm -hmm. And then there is a maximum speed. Right. Also. And time. Cast onto that tire. Mm -hmm. And most of them, I guess it varies somewhat from tire to tire and car to car. But as a general rule, it's about 45 miles an hour. Right. And I think that the distance is anywhere from 20 to 40 miles at a given time. Because what happens when you put a smaller tire on the car, if you think about the physics involved, being shorter, it has to turn faster, faster. to keep up with the other tires. Correct. Because every time that tire goes around, it covers X amount of distance. Well, a taller tire doesn't have to go around as many times to cover the same distance. So that tire is turning much faster than a regular tire. Now, and more to the point, it's turning all of the axles and differential faster. If it's on a driven differential. Right. If it's on one of the drive wheels, which most, most cars are going to be a front-wheel drive today. Right. But what you're doing is that, let's say you've got it on the left front. Well, now the left front axle is probably turning 40 to 50% faster than the right front axle is. Correct. Now, what makes up that difference? 
there's what they call a differential, which is normally inside the transaxle assembly. That is designed for when a car goes around a curve. In other words, when you go around a curve, the inside wheel turns faster than the outside wheel. Because of the distance between or, excuse, them. the other way around. The outside wheel turns faster than the inside wheel because it has to go a further distance Correct. in the same amount of time. And the differential can accommodate that. However, when you're driving along 70 miles an hour, with one wheel turning 40% slower or faster than the other, now those gears are whizzing around in there in a manner they're not designed to do. Correct. And you can do a severe amount of damage to the transaxle assembly on the car. Some of those transaxle assemblies, it's set up just like a differential in a rear end. Mm -hmm. It's just a differential for a front-wheel drive vehicle. And like you were saying, they are inside the transaxle. So if something comes apart in there, the transmission is usually done because... Well, yeah, you can't just tear up the differential. Right. It's going to take the transmission out because it's all one big assembly for the most part. I can there are of, some vehicles that have a, a separate a, a, bolt-on differential. That are, like some of the old Toyotas had like a barricade or barrier inside the case. Right, you had two, two separate, separate lubricant systems on it. But for the vast, vast majority of them, it's all one big case one and unit. all the stuff's in there together. So that when that differential starts to come apart, that metal drops down into the case, it's going into the transmission. It's going Correct. into the valve body. It's going into the clutches. It's going out throughout the transmission. And when it comes apart, it is generally like a grenade went off inside oh, yeah. that case. Yeah, when it, that assembly is spinning three times faster, so it is going to be detrimental. Catastrophic. When the, <laughs> when, a, when the pin breaks or an axle breaks or Gear something comes like apart. that. Yeah, it's going through that aluminum case. Well, yeah, it's pretty much like a monkey wrench in the gears as sure. they used to say because you got a lot of stuff that's turning and meshing in there and when a piece of metal starts floating around in there and gets between two gears it can be a pretty severe safety hazard i know there was some of the chrysler town uh, and country vans caravans and stuff right. that had a problem where the differential pin would come out Right, under certain conditions, if it got worn, or I think it was uh, cold temperatures. Something, I don't recall. Something would shrink, and that pin would drop out of the gear set, and when it did, it dropped into the case, it would, and it, it just destroyed the and case. And when it did, those front wheels were locking up. Oh, yeah. Because they're tied they directly turning. to it. So if you were driving along 40 miles an hour and your front wheel's locked up, right. you, you can kind of do the math in your head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not going to be a pretty sight. But they had a retrofit for that. You would take the differential, go get to the differential pin, and there was a clip mm -hmm. and a bolt where you bolted a clip over the pin so it couldn't drop out even if it did shrink. Right, it was a fix where they wouldn't have that problem. And right. That was under a recall because they equated it to a safety sure. thing. We've sure. talked about that a number of times in that you can have the biggest defect in the world. In other words, you can have the spark plugs that break off in the motor. Right. Kind of like Ford has. They can't make a recall on that. Because it's not a safety issue. It doesn't affect safety. So the Highway Traffic Safety Administration, who administers recalls, has no authority mm -hmm. on a, something like that. But if they can equate it back to safety, then they can come in Correct. and force a recall. So what happens, again, like on the intake manifolds on the Ford products, where you just split wide open. Right. It wasn't a safety issue. So there was a class action suit where a lot of Ford owners went right. in as a class and sued Ford and made them do something about it. But you got to remember the word recall gets thrown around a lot. It does. You have a recall, which is safety related. That's enforced by the government. Then you have a class action suit, which is a legal action, which is enforced through the courts. Mm -hmm. And then you may have just a policy adjustment or warranty extension. That's voluntary. 
That's sort of like when Toyota had the cracked dashes on their cars. Right. That was not a safety concern. They couldn't make them recall it, but Toyota went out voluntarily. Right. They stepped up and said, hey, we got a, we a got inferior a here. product here. We need to have it fixed. We're we need fix to fix it. it. And you will see that a lot with some companies and not so much with other companies. Exactly. Some companies, I guess, are just more concerned about customer satisfaction, and they will voluntarily come out and do something. Right. Other companies, like Ford, for instance, in my experience, you generally have to bring them to court and sue them <laughs> to get them to do something about it. They're not real big on proactively doing anything. General Motors will occasionally step up depending to the plate, situation. depending on what it is. I know on the oil consumption issue they had on the 5.3-liter engines, right. particularly the variable displacement engines, they did step up and do something about it. They extended the warranty on them, I think. Mm-hmm. And I've seen where a few times, like with the dashes, they had it kept going out. Right. They extended the warranty on that. So it's not that they don't care at all about their customers. Right. <laughs> They're just, you can look at the way they handle things like that, and you can see about how much. <laughs> yeah, about how much <laughs> they care. Each company <laughs> tends to care about the customers. But anyway, I thought I would mention that about the spare tires, just because I, I don't know if people just are unaware of that or it's just, hey, it's inconvenient, I'm going to do it this way. Uh-huh. At very, very least, if you do have a front-wheel drive car and you have a flat and you do have to drive on that little temporary spare, a wiser thing would be to put it on the rear if, or the non-driven wheel. If applicable. Yeah, if you can, because at least the rear wheels are independent one of another. So the different size tire, it's going to throw the wheel alignment off because the car is going to be sure. leaning. But it's not going to affect a differential it's, gear. Right. It's only turning a, a side bearing. The mm-hmm. bearing at the wheel itself is the only one it's turning if it's not a rear-wheel drive Which vehicle. It doesn't care. Right. It doesn't care how if it's fast, fast it turns in relation now, to the other wheel. It may also set a um, ABS, ABS light. Or a trash control code. Correct. Because it, it sees that wheel turning faster than the other side or vice versa. And it knows that, hey, something's not right here turn its light on because we've got a problem yeah it may even throw a check engine light under certain conditions depending on the the vehicle yeah the vehicle application the way their software is written let's go to our phone lines we've got john online good morning john i'm calling from toronto canada i was just wondering if you needed any snow tires down there well i doubt you some snowshoes if you got some, some, some. <laughs> well, we got those too. i got a little sprinkling of snow here yeah yeah we got a pretty heavy little blanket yeah. of snow very very unusual for us well, it made the big news. I heard about it, and I thought, well, I have to phone and figure <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I saw this morning on the news. It said it was colder in Baton Rouge than it was in Billings, Montana. Yeah, well, it's it's the international news when you guys get to I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Anyway, I didn't have anything specific. I just wanted, I hadn't talked to you for a long time, and I wanted to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And uh, thanks for all the things that you do for us. Well, uh, well thank, thank you, John, and Merry Christmas to you, and Happy New Year. All right. Well, we'll see you again. Bye. Okay, All right, thanks, sir. John. Thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. All right, got to take a quick little break, but we'll be right back with a whole lot more on the Automotive Hour. If you ever plan to motor west For my car's general inspection, I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah. A general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. 
Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar. And I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie, I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldersand, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? Our number is 291-6901. And before the break, we were talking about maybe the ABS light or the traction control lights coming on because of a because you're running the smaller spare tire. Right. A lot of times on a Toyota product, it'll set two or three lights that mm-hmm. are all tied back to the ABS light. When one comes on, it, it kind of sets several others right as a general rule when it's got an active code in the abs or in the regular pcm Mm -hmm. it's going to disable because now the trash control computer and all that cannot communicate because of the active code in memory so normally you'll notice on a toyota when the check engine light comes on if you have trash control very often that light the vsc right skid control light will also come on and sometimes abs light just depending on what kind of code it is because those computers cannot normally communicate one with another when it knows there's a malfunction another condition sort of like that is on the general motors products when the check engine lights on normally it disables your cruise control mm-hmm. a lot of people come in and say well my cruise is not working yeah my check engine lights on my cruise doesn't work right or the remote start feature will right. generally be disabled when a active code is in memory and there's a car will no longer remote start correct because it's just with the malfunction going on it knows something's wrong and, and the way the software is written it just can't communicate among it, all the computers right and if it can't communicate it can't control right and so it, it disables that system the average car has about 70 modules and I computers know. on it now so yeah. any kind of a malfunction and most of them now at one time they were kind of each a standalone device right whereas now with class two serial data they're all talking on a network and they're all dependent and codependent. They're sharing data. Sure. Much like a, a large computer network would do. And they each depend one on another. In other words, instead of capturing the data from the speed sensor and running it to each computer like they did at one time, used to be you had a speed sensor and it had a wire going to each of the computers. Correct. Well, now it doesn't. That speed signal is simply on class two network. It goes out to all the computers that need it, mm-hmm. and they, there's several computers that share that data. Same thing with the engine temperature and all that. And there's a transmission computer may want to share that data, so it sure. doesn't have to have another wire running to it. it just, it's out there on the network. It has a unique packet ID, so it can just pull it up, and one sensor can control all sorts of things until there's a malfunction. Now, once there's a malfunction, it interrupts the flow of data, then several things may pop on because they're all sharing a certain sensor. And at Maybe the the worst thing is if it can't communicate with a certain PCM or a certain module, it may shut the entire system down. Sometimes which, it can. Yeah. And they're very, very cautious not to shut the vehicle down, except under the most extreme conditions, just because of safety. What they've learned, at one time, there were some things that could disable a vehicle to protect it. Mm-hmm. And 
after a few lawsuits because somebody's car wouldn't start in a very dangerous situation, they found out that, hey, just yeah. try to protect it the best they can, but keep Sacrifice the vehicle running. The- and it's sort of like with overheat. What you'll notice is the light will come on tell you it's overheating. It'll start shutting down cylinders one at a time, try to cool down. It well, may disable the air conditioning. I was going to say, first thing it's going to do is disable AC and any other component that that, that it can to it can, it cool but it's down. not going to shut the car down. No. It will allow you to burn that engine it, up. It will still run. It'll keep on running until it just burns up. Now, once it burns up, then it's on you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own at that point. Yeah, and it's kind of like that, I guess, with the spare tire, like we were talking about. Technically, they could set it where when it's got the spare tire on there, it would recognize that and shut the speed down where it wouldn't go a 40 miles, Correct. 5 miles an hour, or it could shut down after so many miles. I mean, that could all be programmed in very, very it's just, easily. Yeah, it's just software. But it's something that they don't want to assume liability for, and so they will allow you to tear the car up to do what you want to do, Correct. more or less. And it's, I guess just kind of a... I don't know, just the way it is. is yeah. you, you have to be responsible for yourself at some point in time. <laughs> Another key characteristic there that a lot of folks don't realize i notice a lot of people today are driving all-wheel drive cars correct and many of them don't even know what that means it was just they either bought the car with the feature on there didn't even know what it was i mean obviously some people buy it because of the feature sure. people buy used cars a lot of time it's an all-wheel drive car and they don't understand with all-wheel drive there are other certain responsibilities you assume sure for one thing, an all-wheel drive car, all of the tires have to be near the same amount of wear. In other words, you can't have two worn completely out tires on one side and two brand new tires on the other side right? because it will damage the car. Most of them recommend changing all four tires at the same time. At the same time. And certainly that would make most sense and be safest, but you have to, I guess, take it to some extreme because technically, if you got two front tires on the car that will go 10,000 miles, they're probably going to have more wear than the two back tires. For sure. So there's always going to be some difference there. And it some difference allow. it could probably allow for. But let's say you put an improper size tire or a different brand of tire where the sizing is not exactly the same. Correct. Especially, I think one odd tire is probably even worse than two. Because when you put two odd tires, you're turning... The transfer case, which is a little more robust than, say, the differentials are. When you got odd tire side to side, now you're spinning the differential gears, which are probably less tolerant than that transfer than case. Than that is. transfer case. And with one odd tire, now you're turning the transfer case and, and the, the differential. <laughs> right. So I guess the worst possible scenario is you've got your tires are, say, three quarters of the way worn out. You damage one tire and go buy one new tire. Right. Now you've got everything in a bind. you got everything in a pretty serious bind, and you may be causing damage to your car. The tire guy may warn you about it. Of course, a lot of times people say, well, he's just trying to sell me four tires. Mm-hmm. You know, i still got some life left in these. I'm going to go ahead and run them. Right. Well, okay, and that's the choice you're making, but you got to realize what you're doing. Nobody's going to come out and slap your hand. It's not like grade school where they're going to make you do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you all he can do is advise you. He can advise you. That's right. That's well, it. what you should do is put four tires. And really, it's not even his responsibility to do no, that. No, it's not. It's your responsibility as the owner of the vehicle to understand. to understand how your car works. Correct. And the way you do that is by reading the owner's manual. Of course, and I know nobody ever does that. I was going to say it's myself in included. It sits <laughs> in the glove box until you need something out of it, and you know, a certain procedure you have to find or something, and. Then you pick up the manual and you go through it and you find that little thing and you use it and close it, put it back in the glove box. That's right. But 
the thing is, when you buy a car with a unique feature, like all-wheel drive, or and there's lots and lots of stuff sure. today like that, you know, with the technological advances they put on the cars, they have certain things that have to be done. It's sort of like these cars with the active braking systems and the adaptive cruise controls and all that. They all have specific things you have to do and things you have to be careful of. Mm-hmm. So you have to familiarize yourself with those features if you're going to buy those cars. Right. They may be passive to an extent, in other words, they do handle themselves to an extent, but there are certain things you have to do to ensure that you're not damaging they will, the system. And they will keep working. It's sort of like when you have the tire pressure monitoring systems. You have to realize I can't put Fix-A-Flat in this tire because that Fix-A-Flat, and that's a brand name, I don't mean their particular product, but a tire sealant of any kind. Right. It's going to get into that sensor, and it's and going to destroy, destroy it. it. And that means you're going to have to break the tire down, replace the sensor, reprogram the system, which is going to be a very expensive operation. So that's one of those things you just have to kind of know. Right. Sort of like you can't put an odd tire on an all-wheel drive car, and you can't drive your spare tire very far. 70 miles an hour for <laughs> 150 miles. Right. <laughs> Let's go back to our phone lines. we got Burl online. Good morning, Burl. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing good. I called you several years ago and asked a question, and now I forgot the answer. Huh. Same well, on you. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, can you get an accurate oil reading on a cold engine? Well, you're going to get a reading, Burl, and yeah. if you check a hot engine, you're going to get another reading. Right. So okay. which one is the right one and which one is accurate? Normally, you would heat the engine up and then turn it off and let it sit long enough for all the oil to run back down and then take your reading. I got you. Now, if you just walk out and take a cold reading, you're going to get an inaccurate reading. But, again, it's not like this is it's rocket right. science or it's so it's critical. It's not that critical. You know, it, yeah, okay. it, may be, it may show a quarter of a quart low, whereas it's okay. really not. So it's not going to be a critical thing. Yeah, well, I'm just, just curious about whether you could trust yourself or not. You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't think engine oil is that critical. Transmission fluid is a lot more so, generally because the transmission is aluminum, which means there's more thermal expansion at the case. There's more fluid, so there's more expansion in the fluid. It gears around more and all that. So a transmission is far more critical, yeah. particularly it has to be running because it has certain fluid that's going to be in the different parts of it. And when it's not running, you don't have that and okay. all those things. So transmission fluid is a lot more critical. Engine oil, it would be best to warm it to full temperature, turn it off, wait about five minutes, and then take your reading to get a more accurate reading. Depending okay. on what vehicle it is, some of them tell you to wait 30 minutes yeah, because of the sure. way the dipstick is put into the, the engine. Mm-hmm. Some of them okay. have a separate tube, mm-hmm. but the particular engine I'm thinking of, I think it was a Nissan, mm-hmm. the oil tube is in the side of the cylinder head, and it goes through the cylinder head, down through the block, into the oil pan. Mm-hmm. And if you don't wait, that is also the drain back hole for the head. Yeah. So if you don't wait the 30 minutes, you constantly get oil running down running the, stick, onto the stick. And you can't, okay. and you can't get a reading, reading on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. It'll just show oil all the way down the stick. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate you very much. All right. Well, good question, Burl. Bye-bye. 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 All right. That's one of our good customers from shop. Uh-huh. Mr. Burl has a little Toyota yeah. Camry. Yeah. So, anyway, I see we're just about due for our midterm all break right. here. We'll go ahead and take that real quick and be back with a whole lot more. Kate, we can shop tomorrow. I'm off to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems before they become huge repairs down the road. You know, things like small rattles and shakes can become issues and you never can be too... A general inspection each year would be great for my marriage. 
Kate, thanks for bringing David in for his general inspection. Overall, he's in pretty good shape for an older model. I replaced his sensitivity regulator, which was getting a little worn. His not listening to my partner and leave the seat up lights were both about to come on, so I fixed that. As far as preventive maintenance, more fiber, less beer, and watch his portion control, especially on the weekends. And thank goodness for Agco. Kate? Kate, are you listening? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sounds like a general inspection from Agco can improve my marriage. I, I mean vehicle. Uh, improve my vehicle. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> Second segment. <laughs> Second segment of the Automotive Hour. There you go. I'm your host, <laughs> Lewis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We certainly appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. And if you have a question or a comment on the show, why don't you go and give us a call. It's 291-6901. And should you happen to miss your opportunity to get a live question answered this morning, you can always go to our website, get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button and fill out the little form and send it on in. There you go. Couldn't be any easier than that, and we get an answer right on back to you. I had a gentleman who had written a while back, and he had a General Motors SUV-type product. I don't recall the specifics of it, but okay. he was having a problem with his rear wheels were getting a lot hotter than the front on braking. Okay. And he had gone through, sound like a pretty knowledgeable guy, he had done a lot of parts replacement, and he had done the diagnosis to the degree that he could right? and referred it to a shop. And the shop couldn't really find anything. And then I think he inevitably, <clears throat> inevitably, inevitably. There you go. <laughs> went to another shop. And, again, they couldn't find anything. And he wrote to me. And I said, well, first off, go back and retrace everything that's been done to make sure something isn't being overlooked. Mm-hmm. But that particular model did have some trouble with the ABS. It could possibly be the ABS unit. Right. We've because seen that. the proportioning valve. And I remember we had a little four-wheel drive truck. It just never did stop work for Dorn. Mm-hmm. And we had to eventually bypass the ABS unit on it because the truck just wouldn't stop. And anyway, he finally found a third shop. In fact, another listener, who is his friend, okay. uh, referred him to a third shop. And they were able to find the ABS was the problem and bypassed it and put a conventional proportioning valve on it fixed the problem right but i guess the point that i was heading for with all that is that just because a shop says something you can't necessarily it's kind of like parts you can't assume a new part is a known good part and you can't always assume because a guy is in the automotive repair business that he knows everything about every car Mm -hmm. because sometimes you can get just like any other human endeavor, you can get wrong information. So just because the shop said, no, that's not it, sometimes you have to just right. go try another one, get another opinion somewhere. And it's not unlike even medical doctors. I mean, with all the training they've got and as wonderful a job as they do, occasionally they just they need a, sec- need a doctor to give them a second opinion. And sometimes they will even re- recommend that themselves. Right. Once you get a second opinion somewhere and, and see, and many, many times – a fresh set of eyes can go in and see something because I know even in the shop, I have myself gotten involved in a situation where I had a vested interest in one type of thought. And mm-hmm. I was looking for one thing and I was so enamored with that thought thinking that was it. That was it. That was it. That I kept going on and on and on. I wasn't getting anywhere. Right. And someone else may walk up and say, well, have you looked at that? And all of a sudden, 
uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> or, and, you know, you walk up and say, uh, have you, what is this, what is this one reading? And when you tell them, it's like, well, now that's not, not quite right. Yeah. So you start thinking, hey, maybe I'm, maybe I'm blinded here and I need to back up, start over and make sure I'm, I'm going in the right path. Right. And it's not that you're stupid or you're under-trained or that you're ignorant or anything like that. It's just you can get off on a tangent where your thought process is more or less controlling itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going towards a certain end. I remember years ago, I owned a photography studio for a while, and one thing you learn as a photographer is that you tend to like the pictures that were the hardest to take. Uh-huh. The one you have the most effort put into are the ones you're going to feel are the better picture, whereas someone else may not think that. Right. So what you would do, if you had some work you were going to present to someone else, you might want to have a disinterested party look at it and say, which of these do you think is best? And very often you get your feelings hurt because it's not the one you thought was best. <laughs> and it's because you put so much effort into a certain picture, you're kind of married to it right. that, yeah, this is the best one. Because I know it's technically it took a lot more to make it. And same thing with diagnosis. If you got a lot of effort put into a certain area, you may want to, the problem to be there. Right, <laughs> where it's not. Because you never want to admit to yourself, hey, I was wrong. Right. And I need to back up and go another way. And I guess even when you are working at home, if you've got a friend who is also sort of keen on diagnosis, or if you just want to send me an email, Mm -hmm. many times I'm going to give you something to check that may be totally separate from anything you were thinking of. Right. Now, obviously, if you're there looking at the car, you have a huge advantage over me because all I'm doing is going by what you tell me. And if you tell me the wrong thing, then I'm going to go off in the wrong tangent because i don't know what's literally going on with the car whereas you do but sometimes it's better to get some advice outside of your normal school of thought because you can just get off i mean so so often we'll see people say well my car is stumbling and it feels like it's running out of fuel well i'm not sure what that feels like Mm -hmm. because a lot of things can make a car stumble give you that situation so but in your mind you've already seen it that this is a fuel related problem without any evidence that it truly is exactly so you start checking fuel pumps maybe changing a fuel pump changing a fuel pressure regulator changing the fuel filter changing the injectors whereas a couple tests could verify that this is is a fuel problem or this is not a right problem or deny that this is not that and so that's why testing is the scientific method in that a million examples don't prove that it's so, but a, sir, one single example to the contrary proves it's not so. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. If you check and you think this is a fuel problem, but the fuel pressure maintains normal when the problem occurs, this is not a fuel pressure-related problem. Exactly. So now we can go on to ignition or timing or compression or one of the other things that can cause that same situation. a stumble or whatever. Because you can get things that will feel exactly like who knows whatever. Right. But you can't assume that that's what it is without any knowledge. Because if you do, you're going to get so far off on a tangent that you may not ever get close to the real problem. And then you sort of get a vested interest and you start going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But you're going down the wrong. You've taken a while in the road and you just keep going the wrong way. Right. So no matter how far you go, you're just getting further and further from the truth. I remember we had a car in not too long ago, and I don't recall the exact symptom, but it was something that would normally be 
an ignition call kind of a problem, and this was a car that had a problem with ignition calls. Right. So the first thing that we would assume it was probably got it's a bad call. Probably got a. But rather than just go in and start changing calls, it was a misfire on a certain cylinder. We moved the call to a different cylinder. Correct. Misfire didn't move. It stayed where it was. Well, that, there's, okay, there's we, the test right there. Yeah. That tells you it's not the call. You are wrong. Your thinking is wrong. Forget that. Let's Start move, over. Let's go to the next thing. Okay, well, let's move to spark plugs because maybe the spark plug is causing it. Very possible. Misfire stayed. Okay. So, okay, possibly the injector right. could be causing this. Swap injectors, misfire still there. So now you're looking for something particular to that cylinder. To so that one cylinder. So you go in, you check the compression on the cylinder. And what was strange is the cranking compression was fine, mm-hmm. which but, really made it complicated. Right. And unknowledged person right there would have said, hey, okay, the compression's good. Let's move somewhere else. It's got to be something else. However, what you can't do, you can't say, okay, because one test passed, that's the most common thing would be a cranking compression problem. Mm-hmm. If it's got, let's say it's got a burnt valve, it's got a who knows what, a bad camshaft. Right. Then the compression and cranking will be off. However, let's say, like is the case here, the valve spring is broken. Okay. Well, cranking is only turning about 500 RPM. So it can maintain the open and close on the valve. A broken valve spring can still open and close that, that valve. At that speed. However, when it is running, it's running up about 800 to 1,000 RPM. And that broken spring can now not maintain. Now the valve starts to flutter. So what we have to do is run a running compression test. Right. Which, when you did that, you could see it was definitely off on that cylinder. So, the thing is, that's the way you have to kind of go about diagnosis. But what is human nature is you kind of, I guess, fall in love or get enamored with your thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone is susceptible to that. And that's why they invented the scientific method. And that's why it was such a advance forward for mankind in that if you go in and you do a test, and the test proves that your thinking is wrong. You have to revise your theory. Right. You've got to stop. You can't revise the test. <laughs> you have to revise your theory. And so, okay, well, maybe it's something out. Maybe it is related to that. I remember we had a guy who kept changing blower motors on his car. He mm-hmm. put three blower motors. Right. And he says, well, the blower was not working. I changed the motor, and it worked. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, we know the motor was the problem. No, you don't. No, I was going to say. You really don't. It worked about a week, and then it started doing the same thing again. Uh-huh. Well, the first time around, must have been a defective blower motor. Sure. He gets another one. It's not working. He puts it on. It it's is working. working. So, again, in his mind, that was a bad blower why motor. do we keep getting bad blower motors? Right. But the thing is, you're doing other things when you change that blower motor. Sure Number one, when you unplug the blower motor, you're resetting all the modules that are connected to it. Mm-hmm. You're resetting the speed control module, resetting the control head. Number two, you're moving all the wires around that connect to it. Right. So let's say you have a bad connection upstream. Well, when you take this blower motor out, move the wires around, okay, you that, move the, it makes connection. Right. You plug the new motor in, well, it works fine. However, if you just took the old motor out, put the old motor back in, it'll start it working. Or just unplugged it and plugged it back in. Right. That one simple test could have saved you a whole lot of money yep. buying a motor you didn't need. Although you may have needed the motor anyway, because a lot of times a bad connection is because the motor is pulling too many champs. So, sure. But the point is, you can't just run one test, and you do have to realize that every test, no matter how conclusive, has limitations. Sure. You know, no test in diagnosis that can't be a certain circumstance that it may be wrong. I know one of the most common things we see 
people will have, say, an overheating problem or they're losing coolant. And they check the radiator and they check the water pump and they check the thermostat or worse yet, they change all those parts. Yeah. And they still have the overheating problem. So they come to the conclusion, well, it must be a blown head gas. Right. So they go and have a CO2 test run and it comes back negative. They say, well, it can't be that. So then they go on a tangent of a whole lot of other things. But just because this test says the gasket's not blown at this moment. Doesn't mean that it's not. It does not. Now, if it says it is positive for CO2 in the coolant. Now you know. Now you know it is bad. So a positive does mean it is bad. But a negative does not mean. A negative does not mean it's bad. Right. Uh, It's not bad. Because you can get a false negative. A lot of times it's just not occurring under those conditions. You may have to drive it further. You may have to run the test a couple of times. Mm-hmm. There's just It's just the limitation of the test. It's not a black, white, zero, one type of a test. Correct. It's more of a fluid type of a test where sometimes it's going to read properly. Sometimes it may not catch it. We see that a lot, particularly with a crack cylinder head, where the crack is very small. And the engine may have to warm up to a certain temperature. Or be driven for so many miles. Driven so many miles where everything is under the conditions that it occurs. And that's the thing, too. Even with, like, a fuel pressure test, we had a guy one time, and he had a Jeep. Okay. And when he would drive it about 25 or 30 miles, it would die on him. All right. And it wouldn't restart until it sat there for a few minutes, and then it would start again. So he checked a number of things, couldn't find anything. I said, well, check the fuel pump. Well, he puts fuel pressure gauge. I said, no, fuel pump's fine. I said, how do you know it's fine? Well, I check it's got good pressure. Okay, but you didn't check it under the conditions where it occurs. Exactly. And furthermore, you didn't check the volume on it, and you didn't put a scope on the brushes to see if see, the brushes are erratic. See what the pattern looked like. Now, if you did three tests, you might have seen a different circumstances on it. What Instead, he got a fuel pressure gauge, taped it to the windshield, went and drove it 30 miles, and all of a sudden the fuel pressure dropped and the car died. Mm-hmm. Let it, he cranked it, no fuel pressure. Right. Cranked it, no fuel pressure. Let it sit. Let it sit, fuel pressure came back. Well, now he knows the fuel pump is bad. Exactly. And with the equipment and tooling that he had, that's about the only way he could do that. Now, like I said, in a shop, you might put a lab scope on the fuel pump. So you can watch the pattern. You can watch the pattern on the brushes. You can see they're erratic. Mm-hmm. So you know that when this gets hot, it's going to drop out. You can just make that assumption because you have more equipment and more tests you can run. But things don't always fail in a certain way. Certainly a fuel pump that it has inadequate fuel pressure is bad. Sure. One that has too much fuel pressure is bad. One that you turn the key off and it drops to zero is bad. But it could be none of those conditions and still be bad mm-hmm. in that it goes to open circuit when you once get, it gets hot. Right, and you get nothing. Yeah, that way you, again, where we're going with all this, in diagnosis, it's very, very easy to get fooled because not everything is going to show up on every test every time. Exactly. And the same thing with shops. They may run a certain set of tests, not get the proper result, and they Ended may not test further. So, hey, we're going to take our final little break. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Gotta run, Paul. I'm heading to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah, a general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. 
Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar. And I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie. <laughs> me my car into agco for a general inspection keep your car on the road longer schedule your general inspection today at agco automotive agco it's the place to go hey welcome back to the final segment of the automotive hour i'm your host lewis alexander president of agco automotive got our lead tech mr brian terry right here by my side hey between two of us we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have why don't you go and give us a call and, of course, we're talking a little bit about diagnosis and stuff like that today. However, we will take a call on any topic you might have. That we will. Never limited to the topic we're discussing. Nope. You go ahead and give us a call. Give us a shot. There see, you see go. See what, see what we come <laughs> up with, huh? <laughs> You're right. Still got a few minutes. You know, a few weeks ago, we had a gentleman who called. He had a Chevy pickup of some sort, and he had an evap for emissions problem. Uh-huh. And I think he said he had changed the solenoid a couple of times, but still had the problem. And he ended up bringing it to the shop. And what we found was it was setting a large EVAP leak, right? which generally is the solenoid, the EVAP bent solenoid. Many times it is. However, in this particular case, what happened is it was setting a large EVAP leak. Now, the first thing we did, because the solenoid had already been changed, we just verified that it was working. Mm -hmm. We verified the purge solenoid was working. We verified the charcoal canister was not plugged. And all that was working fine. So we did a smoke test of the system, and there's no leak. So how could we have a large EVAP leak when there is no leak in the system? Mm -hmm. The cap was new. The solenoids were new. And the point was, you got to remember, where does this computer get this data to determine this leak? What it does is that it tells the vent solenoid to close, which it does, which seals the system. Then it tells the purge solenoid to open, which draws a vacuum on the tank. When the motor's running. With the motor running. Now, it watches that vacuum. It closes the purge solenoid, and it sees how long that vacuum takes to deteriorate. Now, what we found in the end was that the pressure sensor in the tank was bad. Sure. So across that. that what happens is that when it tells the system to hold, it sees no pressure on the tank, so it, thinks so it it's assumes got, it's a large evap leak. That's the way the software is written. Yeah, it can't say, well, maybe it's this, maybe, maybe, it's, this, that. maybe it's that. Right. If it sees if it sees no voltage on that pressure sensor, it just has to make the assumption that's the way the software is written. There's a vacuum leak. Right. It must be a vacuum leak because I'm not holding pressure here. Correct. However, in this case, the sensor that read the pressure was, was bad, bad, so it just didn't know that there was there was actually still a sure, it was working vacuum like on it the was tank. Supposed it to. was working as designed. It just did not know it was working as designed. <laughs> right. So the end result is the same. And had he brought the vehicle to us at first, we may have found this for him a whole lot cheaper because I know he was out a couple solenoids and I think a charcoal canister and a whole lot of time in trouble. You can take the tech two. And which is the GM scan tool, mm-hmm. and you can read the pressure sensor on the tank mm-hmm. on certain vehicles. And Model S 10 did the same thing. The voltage was fluctuating, turned the light on. There was nothing wrong with the system, but the system thought because the solenoid was acting up that it did not have a vacuum, so it was keeping the light on. You know, another place we see that a lot is where it sets like a 
the engine's not up to temperature. Uh-huh. And the guy will look, and his temperature gauge is reading correctly. So he says, well, maybe the thermostat's bad and it's just taking too long to warm up. Right. So he changes the thermostat and still got a light. And what it is, in this case, the sensor, there's two sensors, one for the computer and one, one for, for the, the gauge. gauge. The one for the computer is not reading properly, so it doesn't see the rise in temperature. Mm-hmm. Even though there is a rise in temperature, it doesn't matter what is, it's what the computer thinks, thinks it is. is. And, and that, that data also is available on the scan tool. Right. If you have a sophisticated a enough type of a tool, a lot of times you can see that. Right. So you can make a better diagnosis without going wrong. Sure. Let's go back to our phone lines with Bob. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Appreciate everything you guys do for well, us. Thank you. Thank you. Scott, my wife has a 2006 Accord, and I changed the spark plugs at 50,000 miles, and mm-hmm. the ceramic seals had failed on all four of them. Yeah, it was blowing compression. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it started, and then that was a few years ago, and I changed them again recently when it wasn't running very well. It was about 36,000 miles, and the seals had failed again. Hmm. I didn't know if there was anything that I needed to know about that. Really, I don't see where there's anything you could do, Bob, other than the selection of the plug. I mean, if you're using an NGK or a Denso plug, you shouldn't have too much trouble. Some of those aftermarket plugs are, are worse about that than others. The only other possibility is if the plugs are over-torqued, you could possibly warp the little shell and cause that. Or if you're lubricating the, the, threads. the threads on those plugs, they will be over-torqued at the proper torque because torque is not how tight it is. It's a resistance to turn. I know a lot of times people will try to put, like, never seize on those threads, which you should never do. That plug should go in dry. And if you ever do that, it's going to be all on the threads. So you can have the Dickens to clean it all out of those threads. But you got to get those threads completely dry and then torque it to the proper torque. Those are the only things I can think of off the top of my head. All righty. Well, thanks very much. All right. I think the original plugs, I think the first time I changed it, they were the original plugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you wouldn't think that would have been the case then on right. either one of those situations. You know, the only other possibility, the little tube seals around the valve covers that keeps the oil and stuff from getting down in there, it's possible if those are leaking, you may be getting some oil vapor down in there and maybe causing a spark to jump between the boot and the thing, which will look just like the compression leaking around the ceramic. It marks it up just about the same. You might check those little seals in the, the tube seals in the valve covers. Make sure there's no oil down in there because that could possibly account for the same thing. Okay, well, thank you very much. Okay, Bob, thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901. If you number, if you want to be part of the automobile, I've still got a couple of minutes left. I'll be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. That's one of those things that a lot of times people, I guess, reason that I'll put some never-sees on these plugs. That way they'll come out easier next time. Right. And while that's an okay theory, what you're doing is that you're lubricating these threads and the specification on those threads is given as a dry specification. Correct. And as we've said many times on the show, torque is not tightness. Correct. Torque relates to tightness. It's resistance to turning. It is resistance to that thing rotating. And if you lubricate it, it is going to rotate easier. easier. So, therefore, the, the torque is actually going to be higher. That's right. What torque, I mean, what tightness is, is that a thread is sort of like an inclined plane and when you turn it, that inclined plane is stretching the part that you're screwing together. Mm-hmm. It's literally the seat is hitting the head, and then the threads are pulling down. So it's stretching the metal, which forms an incredibly powerful spring. And that's what the tightness really is, is that amount of crush that you're getting from the amount of rotation. It really is more related to rotation 
degrees than it is to the amount of force it takes to turn, turn it. it because a dry thing is going to take more torque to turn it to the same amount of degrees than a lubricated one would. So on critical applications now, they're going to a deal where you can measure the amount of turn. You tighten it down until it's contacted. Then you turn it a certain number of degrees. And that's basic mathematics because the, the thread is cut at a certain pitch. So a certain number of degrees is going to produce a certain amount of clamping force. Correct. So that is much, much more accurate than turning torque. to a certain amount of torque, mm-hmm. although that specification is not given on everything. <laughs> and I see we're just about out of time. we got to start winding on up, getting ready to get on out of here. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends, go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service, whichever that might be. Find a written review and fill it out for us. There you go. If you fill out a written review, then when people go in and type in auto repair or car show or something like that, we'll we- pop up close to the top of the list so more folks will click on us and that way more people listen that's what we're here for ratings go up and we can stay on the air <laughs> <laughs> hey preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry have a great weekend